Wow. Well, so thankful for Steve. There, I've, there are just a few memories. I don't know, I'm sure many of you have similar stories, and I guess we're supposed to wait and share them at 2 o'clock. But uh, I just remember, there are you know, honestly painful moments in my life that, that Steve was there as a pastor uh, for me. So thank you, Steve. And uh, Hi. <laughs> I'm Thomas, I'm one of your pastors here, and it's my privilege to open the Bible with you today. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, so I encourage you, I hope you've got a copy of God's Word, we can open that uh, together. And actually, I was thinking about Steve and, um, you know, moving back to the Illinois area, and I was thinking of when uh, my wife Katie and I were moving to Chicago, this was, I don't know, five years ago or something like this, maybe more, and uh, we were looking, we had never been looking for a new church before, and so... Uh, we'd never done it before. What are you supposed to do? It's sort of a weird thing, especially there. There's just dozens and dozens, you know, of, of potential places, with, even within 20 minutes of us. And so how do you get to know a place? How do you get to know a church? You might point to its programs, you know, what do they care about? What are they pouring their, their resources into, their time, their volunteers, all that kind of thing. You might, you might look at their mission statement, their vision statement. What, are they, what do they say they're all about? Parkview Church, we exist to glorify God through the whole church, forming whole disciples of Jesus for the good of all people. Uh, but there was a Scottish pastor some hundreds of years ago, Robert Murray McShane. You might uh, recognize his name as a very famous uh, Bible reading plan that's, that he put together. Robert Murray McShane, he had a very different idea of how you could get to know someone and, and through that get to know a church. This is what he said. He said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What he's saying is, if you really want to know all about someone, listen to their prayers. Listen to what they are on their knees before God. If that's true at the individual level, I think it's true at the corporate level, too. And I've wondered, you know, we, have, we, we pour, in a good way, we, we try to show people, what's Parkview about? And I wonder, this is impossible, but what if we sort of had a magic button on our website instead of our mission statement, and all it was was a magic button that would let you just listen to what we're praying about? What, what would people learn? <laughs> well, God knows, of course. He, he has that magic button at his fingertip. But what, what would people really learn about us, about our mission? If that's all they had to discern what our mission and vision is, what, is, what, are, we, what are we here for? What would they learn? Well, today's passage is the longest prayer that we have recorded in the book of Acts. And so what we get is we get to do that very thing. We get to push the magic button and find out what the early church was all about. And in particular, you know, hardship and opposition and persecution brings out what we really are, doesn't it? It sort of pushes the, the toothpaste out of the tube and what was in there that whole time comes out. And that's what was happening to the church. They were praying the most earnest prayers in response to uh, opposition. And so, what we're going to do today is learn about what it looks like for us to faithfully encounter and respond to opposition in the path of fulfilling the mission that God has given us. So, will you turn with me? Acts 4, should have told you that earlier, sorry, Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. And it says this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and their elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This part view is a challenging passage. Not because it's difficult to understand, not because it is difficult to apply, but because it is difficult for us to obey. And so, as I've reflected this morning, I've thought, this is sort of a challenging sermon. But I think that's what happens when we're faithful to the Bible, is that sometimes we read things that grade against us, and we need to let it do that. So, this is what I want us to hear. I want us to ask this big question of this passage. How should we respond? How should we respond to opposition and discouragement? in our mission to make disciples. This passage gives us a model, a faithful model. It may not be the ultimate model, but certainly it's the faithful model that we're given, faithful example that we're given of what it looks like to respond faithfully to opposition, to discouragement. We've learned three lessons, three moves we have to make in our hearts and with our hands, so to speak, in order to respond faithfully. But isn't it obvious that what we must do also is pray together? We must pray. So will you join me first here? Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect. Your word is perfect. It tells us all that we need to know to live faithfully in your world. Help us to listen. Help us to listen today. I know I have been challenged by this passage. I know your spirit has laid many things on my heart. I've sensed opposition um, to this message, and I've prayed through it as you've taught me from this passage. Help our hearts, all of us, to be open to your leading, open to your admonishment, open to your encouragement to whatever you have to say to us through your precious word. Let all that we do today, all that we do today, bring great honor to the name of the Lord Jesus, your holy servant. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now you'll remember uh, where we left off in Acts, Peter and John had just been arrested after healing a man who had been uh, born without the use of his legs, this disabled man. He leaped up in, in fulfillment of God's promises that he would make all things new. And the people saw this and they were amazed. And they followed Peter and John and they began to tell everyone about the wonderful works of God and what he was doing in his world to make all things new in the powerful name of Jesus. And this disturbed the leaders. And so they, they took Peter and John, they arrested them, they questioned them, and after a time, uh, they decided to release them, but only after doing this. If you look up just a few verses earlier in chapter four, verse 18, it says they called them, that is Peter and John, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were experiencing the tension between Jesus' call. He said at the beginning of the book of Acts, you'll remember, you will be my witnesses. Go and be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead uh, to the ends of the earth. And yet here are these leaders who have threatened them uh, 
to do just the opposite of what Jesus has clearly taught them to do. What are they going to do? And isn't this just such a, you don't really realize, the first three chapters of Acts are just sort of ongoing victory after victory after victory after success, after uh, people are sort of selling their goods to support the community. Uh, the first time Peter stands up to preach, thousands of people are converted. It's just sort of, it feels like the sense of momentum has just reached a fever pitch and then screech! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it, they say. And keep in mind, there's no empty threat. The last time that these Jewish leaders brought in one of their, these people from this, the followers of Jesus, Jesus himself, what happened to him? He was hung on a cross. They have the power, they, and they have the heart and the will to follow through on these threats. How would they respond? Verse 24. Um, well, sorry, verse 23, I should say. They go into... They, um, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. That is to say, they prayed. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, sea and everything in them, and so on and so on. First thing they do is pray. And that's, a, of course, it's basically the content of the entire passage is their prayer. And so well, that's my second point, is we must pray. But before we get there, I want to point out a few things. You know, the first five verses of this prayer is not, it's not a series of requests the way that we normally think about prayer. When I'm praying, what am I doing? I've got a need. Pray, God, supply my need. Um, that's a perfectly legitimate way of prayer. God teaches us to, to pray that way. Jesus teaches us to pray that way. But first, these first five verses are completely different. What it is, is it's the community coming bef before God together and presenting to and reflecting on in the presence of God sort of a theological account for the fact that they are suffering. It's, isn't it only natural that our first response to suffering is to sort of go, why? Why is this happening? What's going on? Um, just yesterday, I was making a walking taco. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this incredible invention. It's uh, great, but basically you make a taco in a bag of chips, okay? That's all you need to know. Um, and so I was putting the meat in, and uh, what happened was the bag is not really designed for this. I don't know why, it should be. Um, but the bag tipped over into the sink. And my first response was, why? Now, that's the silliest example I could ever think of, but uh, I, I, who was I asking why, <laughs> you know? Uh, I wasn't asking, my wife was standing over there, I wasn't asking her why did this happen. It's because of the laws of physics, I don't know. I would say, why, why? I was shouting at the heavens, why? Even in the silly example of sort of the tiniest, you know, I spilled some nacho chips in the sink when I wanted to eat them. Why? It's our instinct, it's our gut reaction to suffering is to ask why. And what the disciples do first is they go before God in prayer, reflect on his promises of old, their Bible, which was of course the Old Testament at that point, and they found Psalm 2 to be great comfort to them. And they quote it, why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the peoples plot in vain? This is what Will read earlier. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They reflect on Psalm 2. Psalm 2, if you read the whole thing, is this psalm, this song celebrating God's total control, his total unthwarted will, undefeated uh, will throughout history. It's never been, never been really actually thwarted. And so uh, it does so by focusing on the reign of God and the reign of his anointed one. Um, and now when Psalm 2 was written originally, those, those hundreds and well, thousands of years ago at that point, uh, it would have been, uh, who was the anointed it was David, King David. That was what the, he was anointed by Samuel. Remember the, the story? And so like, like so many other psalms, um, in that moment, the oppression of the enemy was a real thing. 
If you read through First uh, and Second Samuel and the life of David and the Psalms, he's constantly being threatened by oppos- opposing nations and even from within. Um, so it was great comfort when Psalm 2 was written to its original audience that God was in control. Now that word for anointed is the word Messiah, Mashiach, Messiah. It's a Greek word is Christos. You probably recognize this word Christ. And so this fledgling community in the face of suffering looks to Psalm 2 and says, God is on the side of his anointed one. And they said, what was true about David, that anointed king, is pointing forward to the ultimate anointed one, Jesus, against whom the nations will plot in vain, against whom all the people, all the worlds, and all of its power and its opposition will do whatever they can to suppress him, and yet their threats will be, remember Psalm 2, in vain. Why do the people's plot in vain, it says, in vain? It's vanity. And so here's the community reflecting on this passage and comforting themselves in the midst of opposition. The first thing that they do is apply it to themselves. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, there's that same word, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is part of God's story, they're saying. And so their conclusion, based on what was revealed to them and prophesied all those years ago, is that the oppression that they're experiencing is no surprise in the mind of God. It's not a shock. This is the pattern of history reappearing. It's not a shock. It was prophesied. Not to mention, you remember that Jesus himself is the one who promised this. Don't be surprised when the world hates me, he told these very people. Um, Don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me first. Now, like many of you, been following the developments of this conflict between Russia and Ukraine and this terrible war that's been going on, and it's been sort of, sort of morbidly fascinating to see, you know, these attacks that are happening. Unlike almost any other time in history, we sort of see what's happening almost in real time. Almost on, it's it's sort of terrible actually. But um, one thing I've learned is just the value of information, the value of knowing when is my opponent attack, attacking, when is it going to happen, where is it going to happen, and how. One of, the greatest, uh, one of the greatest assets that you know, a military force can have is the element of surprise. What you want to do is attack your enemy when they are least expecting it in a way they never would have thought, and it'd be great if they don't even know where you are. Now, the Bible pulls no punches when it describes our situation as Christians. We are in the great battle of our generation. Our enemy is on the move against us, and we should never be surprised. We should never be shocked that this is true. And so the first lesson we need to learn in order to face opposition faithfully is to prepare for it. We have to be prepared for it. We can't be surprised. We can't be shocked. God has called every one of us to make disciples of Jesus. And whether it's it's the simple everyday ways of of sort of helping a fellow believer defeat sin in their life, or it's it's faithfully inviting an unbelieving friend to, to read the Bible with you or to get dinner or whatever it might be, um, there will be resistance. And I, I think what probably most of us need to hear on this topic today, because I know it's why I need to hear, is that supernatural resistance or world resistance or whatever you want to call it, opposition, generally, is not the burden that's placed on super special superhero Christians. We'd be tempted to think that as we read this passage. We'd go, ah, the early church, they're basically perfect, follow their example and everything, and that's... The fact is... If you are a Christian today, you are experiencing, facing active discouragement and spiritual opposition 
toward following God's mission. It is not an if. It is not an if. It is absolutely certain. There are forces in the world that are arrayed against you to keep you from opening your mouth and speaking about Jesus, and if you do, to stop you from doing so. The last thing that these forces want is for you to open your mouth about Jesus. Um, we had a plumber at our house on Friday. A guy was helping us out with our pipes and whatever. doesn't matter. Um, but he, w- he sort of hung around the house, and he was talking with us a little bit. He had, he'd asked me. He saw me work. He, I was working on the sermon, and I was down in my office and working a little bit. He said, oh, what do you do? And we talked a little bit. I'm a pastor, and we talked a little bit. Afterward, he was talking to my wife, and he has, his leg hurts, and he was sort of sharing about she's a physical therapist. And, and so we were just talking a little bit, and I sort of felt, you know, it felt like he's probably about to leave, and we had sort of a bit of a personal connection. I said, hey, you know, you've shared about your leg hurting. I, I knew in my mind, you know, I, I think I have an opportunity. Here's his person. He's come near to Christians, and he has pain. He's, he's shared a burden with us. I should pray for him. I should, I should at least offer to pray for him. But you know what I felt? <laughs> no, I shouldn't. <laughs> no, I shouldn't because, well, first of all, he'll think I'm a weirdo, or he'll say, okay, bye, or I don't know, just all these ideas went through my mind. First, I thought, oh, do I really have to do that today? I've got, I'm doing this important work for God. Do I, do I really have to do more and do that? I'm, you know, and all, here's how he's going to respond, these, these images in my mind of him scowling at me or saying, oh, I'm not, do you guys think this about that? No, all these things. Now, by the way, I hadn't even opened my mouth yet. <laughs> hadn't even said a word. What was going on? It was inside of me. It was inside of me. Here's the thing that we so often miss. The kingdom of darkness, of course, there are many strategies to prevent us uh, from the good news going forward about Jesus. Um, But the world's rejection, which is really the big theme of this passage, the world's rejection, the point where we actually open mouth and speak, speak about Jesus, and then receive sort of some, maybe some negative feedback. Of course, that's totally possible. That's actually the last line of defense. That's the last, that's the prison fence there's 10 layers of protection before we ever get there. It's plan C. It, it, if you get to the point where you're actually going to open your mouth and speak like, like these Christians did early in the church, uh, you have already broken through several layers of the enemy's defenses. The world's rejection and persecution is actually a last-ditch effort to try to recoup some of what's already been lost by them in the battle. They've already given up territory if we've gotten that far. Now, According to the Bible, there are three enemies that we face. Three enemies that we face. Our flesh, the devil, and his minions, the the forces of supernatural power, and then, finally, the world. And what we must do is we must face each of these in turn. When we're facing the flesh, we're, we're thinking things like this. We know we must make disciples. Maybe there's a situation like that. Maybe there's one at work. Maybe there's one with a coworker. Maybe there's one with a roommate or with a family member. And you think, oh, do I really have to? So many, so many other good things, not, not even sinful things, good things I could be spending my time on at this moment. It, making disciples sort of threatens our inner sense of equilibrium, our own flesh, but at the same time, you know, our, our flesh does not want us making disciples. It wants us focusing on things that will sort of keep us comfortable and keep us happy. Are you defeating the resistance to the flesh? Have you really set yourself to say, I am making disciples? Flesh, you can come with me or not. We're going. Are you defeating that resistance? If we defeat the flesh, if we manage to sort of get outside of ourselves and say, I've decided, I'm doing it, whatever it happens to be, we will then be confronted by the force of darkness, Satan and his minions, 
However, they are aligned against us. Keep in mind, he has limited resources, okay? He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. The devil can't pay attention to every single one of us or his demons, whatever it happens to be. There are supernatural forces arrayed against us, but here's how he works. The second that you decide, you know what, in this moment, like I did with the plumber, <laughs> I, I should ask to pray for him. I did, by the way. I followed through. Hooray! That's awesome. Okay. Um, here's what he does. The next step. He puts ideas in your mind. Puts images in your mind. Oh, it'll never work. You know, people don't really change. It's Iowa City. I mean, people, they don't want to hear it. Uh, they'll think you're a, you're a religious fuddy-duddy. Wait till next week. Um, they, they put, he'll put things in your mind like this. Are you serious? You think you should do that? Don't you remember what you did in the hotel room 14 years ago? You think you are going to make disciples? You think God will bless that? He starts to put things like that in your mind. He, he'll overwhelm you with sort of just a vague sense of discouragement and fogginess that you don't exactly know where it comes from. These are his tools. What is this? It's spiritual opposition. It's spiritual oppression. We must be ready for it. We must resist it. We must persist through it. Now, and remember, I hope you remember this. That's the last line of defense. The last line of defense to break through is the world's opposition when we actually open our mouths. And in the end, it's, it, it may be even sort of the, the last thing to worry about. I don't know about you, often I lament, Satan doesn't need to waste a demon on me. The world doesn't need to waste opposition to me because my flesh is enough to keep me from opening my own mouth. Woof. Friends, opposition to our mission, it's not just out there, it's in here. We must overcome it. We must overcome it. So, lesson number one. That was the longest lesson but maybe the most important one, is that we must be prepared for opposition. We must prepare for it. Secondly, and clearly, we must pray through it. We must pray through the opposition. Uh, second lesson we see is that they pray, and so also we must pray in the face of opposition, whether it's from our flesh, from supernatural forces, and the invisible sort of whatever they are, invasive thoughts that come into our mind and try to keep us from doing things we know God wants us to do, or from the world. Um, when we say things and people meet us harshly, how do we respond with gentleness and persistence? First, let's note again that the thing that we would normally call prayer doesn't come until verses 29 and 30. Two verses that we would probably call prayer, asking for things, and five verses of well, something different. Five verses of the community reflecting back to God in prayer truths about who God is. That's what they're doing. When facing adversity in the course of our mission to become more like Christ and help others do the same, our prayer life must, absolutely, it must become richer. It must become deeper. It must become more complex. It must become more intimate. The reality of God must penetrate our consciousness on a more consistent basis. How often do we spend time with, with God in prayer simply admiring him? simply enjoying him as we read his word and we read truths about who he is. It, as the world seems to sort of lose its mind and degenerate around us in different ways, God is a solid rock. God's character is a refuge. He is unchanging. He is a stronghold. A stronghold is somewhere you, you go and no matter how much the enemy beats on your door, the stronghold takes it instead of you. He himself is our strength, our source of all that we need to face 
adversity. We don't need a generic pep talk from a generic guru. We don't need, just need technique and inspiration. What we need most of all, and this is what they, they learned then, what we need most of all is to know that God is who he says he is. They knew it, and we must know it. If we will persevere through adversity, we must do it. Then we see what they pray for. We see what they pray for. First they say, look upon their threats. Let's look back at the text here. Um, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's the first thing they ask. Look upon their threats. Given what they're facing, doesn't that seem almost, I don't know, it seems almost underwhelming? This isn't a request for God to simply look, observe, see it as if he didn't before. Uh, it's a request, for, of course, for God to do something about it. But it seems like almost the mildest possible way for to ask God to intervene. Um, notice the humility. It's a request. Look, look upon their threats, not a demand. If you're anything like me, so often when I'm suffering in the path of obedience, whether it looks like this or something different, I feel like God owes me deliverance from my, all my problems. He owes me comfort. I'm doing this for you. Do your part. That is not the attitude that they bring to God in this path of mission. They pray with the realization that however God wants to move their mission forward, he will. Please do it. And so they lay it at, their, at his feet. Lord, look upon their threats. And, and don't you expect the next phrase to be, smash them. <laughs> smash their threats. Uh, eliminate them. Get them out of there. Instead, and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This prayer is most noteworthy for the things that it doesn't ask. Nowhere do they ask for God to smite their enemies. That wasn't what Jesus had called them to do. They've been, they've been called to be witnesses, to bear witness. You know what a witness does? They say what they've seen. They say what they've experienced. Nowhere do they ask for God to smite their enemies. They don't ask God to make their burden lighter. Ask less of me. No. They don't ask for wisdom. Here's what, here's, if, I think if it were me, if you're honest with yourself, wouldn't you say, Lord, it was so wonderful that you healed that man publicly. Maybe next time we go to a private room, heal him, so that there's a little less notoriety and the uh, officials will be a little less angry with us. That would be great. If those things could be done a little bit more privately, lower our profile so that we're less exposed to the anger of the ruling people. No, instead, they ask for more power, for more courage, for more boldness. Their heart clearly is for more and more people to know more and more about Jesus and look more and more like him. The good news, as they saw, is that in prayer, we have a direct connection to the most powerful person in the universe. In the face of opposition, what do you want more than to be able to reach out to a well-connected friend who can actually change your circumstances. I've said this before, but prayer is the place where God will take the intellectual truths that we know in our minds. They may, they may be, in our minds, bedrock convictions and actually make them practices, may actually make them affect our hearts, actually make us follow through on the things that we say we believe. I know. Think if I handed out the doctrinal statement of evangelism, if I handed it out to you, probably many of us, maybe all of us would be, I don't know, um, here saying, I think I agree with this. I think I agree with this. That's right. My neighbors need Jesus. 
My neighbors need Christ. They need him. Without Christ, they'll suffer eternally under God's wrath. Your friends and coworkers know, right? You, they, need, they need Jesus. Wouldn't we, we can all? And that's my responsibility. I should open my mouth and speak words about Christ to the people that God puts in my path. And he has put people in all of our path to speak words about Jesus. And yet, if you didn't know any of that and you were just looking at my life, I'll use myself as an example here. You can use yourself. If all you had was my normal habits and routines and the, what, the ways that I interact with people who don't know Jesus, would you conclude that that is the statement that I would sign my name under? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It would be a tough case. Prayer is the way that God takes the truths and con- convictions that we say with our mouths and we would sign our name on and puts them down into our hearts so that we can actually follow through on the things that we say we believe. This is challenging. This is challenging. Prayer is the ongoing fuel to get us started, whether it's the tiniest baby step in this or the biggest next step for us. In prayer, God will comfort us. God comforts us. This is what we see here. God comforts us when we suffer in the path of making disciples. In prayer, God actually fills us with courage, not imaginary courage, not sort of trumped up, ah, I'm full of inspiration courage, generically, uh, when we're fearful in the path of making disciples. In prayer, God takes our convictions that we just talked about, about evangelism, and turns them into practices. If we are going to become people of courage who respond faithfully in the response to the opposition that we will face, we must be people of persistence in prayer. We must pray through it. It's our only hope. It's plan A. It's not a Hail Mary. It's not the last ditch effort. It's plan A. So, as we, not when we, but as we face opposition, as we labor to fulfill the mission God has given us, we must pray through it. And finally, we must persevere. We must persevere. In verses 31 and 32, we see God's mighty, mighty response to the prayer of this fledgling community of Christians. When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God answers their prayer immediately and powerfully. God fills them with boldness to continue to speak the word, to not be intimidated, uh, to not cower in fear, despite the opposition that they faced. Now, where did this new courage come from? Uh, it came from the confidence that comes with being utterly sure of the power and presence of God. From the confidence that comes with being absolutely sure of the power and presence of God among us. This is good news for those of us today who, here we are, 25 minutes in, thinking, aha, it's Sunday morning beatdown time, (laughs) Uh, and here's the message, buck up, buttercup, Fill yourself with courage. Come on, you're doing it all wrong. Actually, the passage that we're reading today is a story of a bunch of people who were terrified, who felt like they were being total cowards. They heard the words that were spoken. They said, ah, we're going the exact same way of Jesus and we're scared out of our minds. And what they learned then is what we need to learn now. And that is that courage, the kind of courage that will do the things that we're talking about today, is courage that's not first achieved, it's courage that's received. I mean, look at here. Uh, do you pray for things that you don't already have, or that, that you do already have? 
I don't find myself praying for the things that, God, give me a car. I have a car. God, give me, I need this in this moment. No, I, if I already have it. Here they are praying for boldness. That means in their hearts they were experiencing just the opposite. They were intimidated. They were afraid. They were scared. What are we going to do? The last time these people trotted someone in to be in, interrogated, they killed him. What's going to happen to us? Now, the good news is that God, on this very morning, has already anticipated that feeling in you, in me, as I've been preparing. This is a story of weak people, intimidated people, coming to a strong Savior to receive his strength in them by the power of the Spirit. The only thing, forget everything else, the only thing that will motivate us to take the risks, real risks, God does not spit on our obedience when it takes us, especially towards things that are scary. The only thing that will motivate us to take the risks that God is calling us to take is if he can somehow show us, somehow assure us at the deepest level that the risks that look so scary are in fact not scary at all. How does he do that? It's only if we can see and, br- and truly bring our hearts to the Lord in this humble way, to bring our hearts to the Lord and say, I'm afraid. And say, I don't feel ready. I, I, I'm lacking boldness. That's why you pray for boldness. We need to be like them and bring our hearts in humility to the Lord. God, how, how does God respond? When we bring our hearts to him like this, in this humble posture, he shakes the ground they stand on. Which surely must have evoked at least a couple things. First of all, can you have any doubt that God is with us? <laughs> they must have thought, here he is, he's with us, and he can shake the ground. The God who can shake the ground can surely take care of our enemies if he needs to. And secondly, when was the last time they felt the earth shake? These precious disciples, for so many of them, the last time they felt the earth shake under their feet was when they saw their Savior on a cross dying for their sins, for their cowardliness, for their lack of zeal, for their lack of courage to intervene. Read that in the Gospel of Matthew. It tells us that as Jesus gave up his final breath, the earth shook underneath their feet. There's some memories that get so ingrained in your mind, smells that were happening at that moment, sounds that you can never get out of your mind again, Can you imagine the disciples standing there, praying that they would have boldness to speak the word, admitting their cowardice, and at that very moment, God does the same thing that he did those, was it weeks before then? And why did Jesus go to that cross? It's because he spoke the word with boldness. It's because he refused to be cowed by the threats that were made against him. It's because he was facing opposition And what happened to him? He suffered the worst that the world could throw at him. You can't go beyond dead. (laughs) Jesus took the world's best shot. uh, And yet the Father didn't abandon him to death. In fact, that's if we read Psalm 2 and it says, uh, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Was their plot in vain? (laughs) As they reflected on Psalm 2, I mean, they killed him. That's not a vain plot. That's a successful plot, isn't it? Not if he rose again. What if even the most terrifying weapon that the enemy has to throw on us has been disarmed in front of you? Today, we can speak the word boldly, confident that whatever kind of death we face, dying to our reputation, dying to our need for approval, dying to our need for our own free time in our flesh, 
we can be confident that God will never leave us and forsake us and confident that the things that are leveled as threats against us, whether it's our own minds telling us, if you do this, you will suffer this, you will suffer the loss of these things, we can be confident that those threats are empty. Their threats against Jesus were in vain. Their threats against us are in vain. Now, God's promise is that he will meet us with power and glory. Move forward. Will we move and, and follow the captain into the breach? Because he's come out again, alive. And he'll do the same thing for us. Now, it seems silly for us to read a passage about asking God for boldness in prayer to proclaim God's word without doing exactly the thing that it does. <laughs> um, and so we've, we've talked about how first we must prepare and expect persecution to come, not be surprised by it, but whether it's our own flesh resisting us making disciples, whether it's uh, the forces of darkness putting crazy thoughts in our minds to, to suppress us, or whether it's finally, you know, people not always receiving us in the way that we'd like. Now, uh, the book of Acts even is a story of sort of mixed expectations. Things go well sometimes, things go horribly sometimes. But, and then finally, we need to persevere because of the example of Christ, to have died for our sins, not only that, but shown us that death is disarmed and that even the best, the worst things that the world can throw at us are in, in the end completely disarmed in front of us so we can move forward with courage. But let's pray now. Uh, in three weeks, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> I'm so excited um, to celebrate Easter together, that Christ has not died, that this is why we need a resurrected Savior, by the way. That exactly right there that we just talked about, that dynamic that Jesus is the one who has gone into death and come back out the other side, a living Savior who can fill us with power. That's why we need it. Now, I, we need to invite our friends to come and hear about the good news of Jesus. This is one of those times where we'd say, here's a great time to invite a friend. Uh, I don't know who it is in your life, um, but I want to take some time praying for that. Um, we're planning a Sunday that will, of course, honor God uh, with our worship, but will also intentionally be sort of focused on those who are coming who don't know Christ uh, or don't know him very well. Um, so please, we're going to spend some time praying for that. We're also planning an evangelistic course to follow Easter a few weeks, one, two, three weeks after Easter for those following three, um, called Hope Explored for those who are uh, wanting to learn more about Christ. Maybe your friends who come are intrigued, and that could be a good next step for them, so we can pray for that. I know it it's, may not be the right move for everyone, but I know God has called us to move forward in boldness to speak words about Christ, so let's be bold. So, uh, I'm going to spend a couple minutes praying. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you some time for you to pray, and then I'll close this so it'll all be clear. But let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, you are the Alpha and Omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are the fulfillment, the promise of Psalm 2 and of every promise. You have kept all of your words, you are faithful and true. Your character is our refuge when we are terrified. Your word is our guide in everything. You are the creator and sustainer of all life. You hold us right now in the palm of your hand. You are worthy, worthy, worthy of all worship. Our worship, our neighbor's worship, all of creation is singing out in praise to you, and we want everyone else to do the same. Lord, we are burdened Burden to bear witness to your great glory and loving sacrifice to our friends, neighbors, and coworkers. Lord, we know we are not burdened as we ought to be, but you are the God of all power who can make us what we must be. So, would you fill us with boldness? Won't you? 
Won't you give us opportunities and give us eyes to see them as what they are, those opportunities, and capitalize on them? Won't you fill us with confidence that your spirit will do just what your spirit did so many years ago with these disciples? Overcome our fear with your power and presence. Now, I invite you to take a moment uh, quietly by yourself to ask God in the quietness of your heart to reveal to you those whom he has prepared for you to share Christ with. Lord, who have you prepared for me? Take a few moments. Now, ask the Lord, just like these believers did so many years ago, to fill you with boldness to do just what they did, to speak the word with courage. Lord, you are good and great. You are the king of all. We know that you are doing something powerful and amazing through your people, through your church, filled with your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us. Shake the ground like you did all those years ago in our hearts to assure us that you are with us and that you are powerful. Give us power to speak your word to our friends and neighbors so that King Jesus would receive much, much glory forever and ever. We pray all this in his name. Amen.